too late. All right, our passage today is Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 23. I will start with this analysis of this paragraph, or this section. This paragraph is probably the most difficult in the entire book of Colossians to interpret. It's also difficult to apply, given that the fact that the false teaching that provoked Paul does not find a perfect counterpart in our day and time. So as a teacher, someone trying to exposit or (coughs) open up this text, it is a challenge. I consulted uh, commentaries by W.R. Nicholson, John Kitchen, David Garland, F.F. Bruce, Sam Storn, Scott McKnight, Sinclair Ferguson, and many more and then printed out 36,000 words of study that I had collected in an attempt to approach this. Fortunately, there is a somewhat common exegesis, but we have a problem, well, partly it's bewildering on how best to express it to this group, but we have a problem in that if you use different Bible translations, they do not agree. This was illustrated in very flagrant form last night when I realized at 10 minutes after 10 that I had been working off the wrong translation. And your handout was the wrong translation. So I had to throw that away and start over because it's not to say that translations are wrong, it's just that the underlying Greek is not always perfectly clear. And there are some words that are used in this text that are only used here in the entire New Testament. So you can't say, oh, this was used over here, and it meant this. And it was used over here, and it meant this as well, which means it means that. Now, you look at it and go, I have no idea why Paul picked this particular Greek word right here. What was he talking about? So, we get to enjoy this experience together, and you now have a handout that is using ESV. I choose the ESV because it's the Bible we have in the pew in our church, and it's becoming more and more common as the one we're all using, but every once in a while, you, you might have someone who has an NIV or they've done their memorization in the King James or they're using the New American Standard or fill in the blank. There are myriad of options out there. With that in mind, let me read the verses 16 to 23 so that we are all hearing the same text and have the text in front of us at the same time. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. They're a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, 
puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grow with a growth that is from God. <coughs> if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made worship or religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. (coughs) Hooray. You can read that the first time and go, okay, I'll just move on to the good stuff in chapter 3 because it would be very easy to do. But it's here. Remember, that's kind of our... Our theme that we have done over these last 17, 18 years, it's here for a reason. It's the Word of God in this form for this moment, in this time, in this class, in this hour. And it starts in verse 16 with a word. Therefore, What do we say when we see the word therefore? What is it therefore? What is he referring to? He's referring to the two paragraphs prior that I have put on your handout. And that's for your um, connectivity. We're not going to look back in those other two paragraphs other than for me to say found in those two paragraphs are the fullness of Christ, being alive in Christ, the forgiveness of sins, no more condemnation, your sin has been nailed to the cross, he overcame the powers and authorities and triumphs through the cross, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink, or regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. And you have to kind of step back and go, What are we talking about here? I went down a proverbial rabbit hole. And I started digging into, oh, various, uh, let's just say, rules, restrictions, regulations when it comes to food and drink. And you might think, oh, well, he's talking about the Jewish law, right? Maybe. But there's very little in the Old Testament law about what you drink. In fact, very little. It's all about what you eat, what is unclean. And that was one method to separate the Jewish people from the others, the non-Jewish, the Gentile, they would look at the Jew and go, you practice this, that's just weird. And you're going, well, we're following God's law. Now, there's an old book out called None of These Diseases, where this medical doctor went into the dietary laws of the ancient Jews and went, you know, there were health reasons for all of this. Mm-hmm. He kept them from some pretty awful uh, potential uh, health destruction with these dietary laws. There's a reason for it. 
And I also thought, oh, I remember one very interesting expression of what to eat and drink, or what not to eat and not drink. Growing up, we all heard about the Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, who were not allowed to drink what? Coffee. Coffee, or Diet Coke, or Coke, or anything with caffeine in it. And they always did it anyway, but but back in the day, no. And I thought, so this is one of the rabbit holes I went down. And I thought, where did that originate? And what, what caused this discussion? And I actually found the text from 1833 written by Joseph Smith in his Doctrine and Covenants where he talks about a restriction of hot drinks that are not for the body or the belly. That's all he said. Now it was talking about wine, it was talking about other, you know, alcoholic beverages, but then it says do not consume hot drinks. That was then defined as tea and coffee, and then later it was redefined as including Coca-Cola because it had caffeine in it. And I actually found the letter from the head of Coca-Cola in the early 1900s written to the president of the Mormon church saying, you do know that Coca-Cola has less coffee and less caffeine than coffee does. It's okay. And they went, uh, and they made this big deal about it. It wasn't until 2012 that the Mormon church came out and officially said, Coke is okay. And I thought, why would they do that in 2012? Who was running for president? Mitt Romney, a Mormon. And there was all these questions about, well, what is Mormonism? Are they a secret society? Are they going to, you know... Anyway, all that weird stuff was going on. And so they clarified a doctrinal position that had been around for 179 years, which most everyone was ignoring anyway. But I then started thinking about growing up and being told, well, don't smoke, don't chew, and don't go with girls that do. (laughs) Or there was restrictions about well, you know, Baptists don't dance. Now, I'm a Baptist, I still can't dance. (laughs) I have three, you know, I have two daughters that got degrees in dance and they would say, Dad, please, don't. Daddy, don't. You know, I go, but it looks so good. They're like, no, 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 no. It does not look good. Even for the the father-daughter dance for Fiona, she made me rehearse over and over again, going, okay, step here. Oh, daddy, it's not that hard. Uh, yes, I, it is. I'm going to add something. <laughs> Go ahead. Actually, it's very sweet. He did not do that with Geneva. Did not do that with Christina because it's like I can't. I don't do that. I, I don't want to so mortify them. And by the time Fiona got married, he realized how how much it meant to them. So he. Um, so he agreed, but didn't tell Geneva or Tristina. We kept it secret. 
And after he finished dancing with Fiona, he went up and he went to Geneva and he also went to Zoom. It was very oh, sweet. And I cried. So <laughs> I'm hearing that story. I did get to dance with all three of them. It's just a little later. It did look awkward. Anyway, <laughs> that's a very different rabbit hole that we just went down. But you, you think about all these restrictions. You know, you see someone, oh, you're drinking wine with your meal. Mm, that's bad. Well, in some places, it's okay. Charles Spurgeon was consistently criticized for his habit of smoking cigars. In fact, Dwight L. Moody, Moody Bible Institute, Moody Church, pretty much said, Spurgeon, you're sinning. It was a, a bone of contention between the two of them. Charles Spurgeon was once asked, when are you going to stop that vile habit of smoking cigars? He goes, whenever it gets to excess. <laughs> and he said, well, what is excess? He says, when I start smoking two at a time. C.S. <laughs> <laughs> Lewis, he had a pipe and he drank wine. And so there's this, oh my goodness, and we start adding these things to our judgment of their relationship to Christ, don't we? Well, and it's also in the secular world, if you think about it, um, you know, in popular culture, it's not okay to, you know, you're trying to get organic things, uh, no trans fats, mm -hmm. uh, high fructose corn syrup is bad, you know, like, yeah. Sometimes it is backed by health, and sometimes it's just diets, keto and whatnot, where it's like yeah. people grab onto these things so that they can say, look, I'm doing this, and right. you're not. Well, it's like you go to the grocery store, which I went in last week, and I stood there and going, what's the difference between organic bananas and non-organic bananas? <laughs> I thought bananas were organic. <laughs> anyway, we won't go there. That was one of those, I'm just kind of standing going, and the organic's more expensive, it looks like a banana. It's shaped like a banana. I bet it tastes like a banana. Anyway. And then I realized when I started out of that rabbit trail and I got to the end of the rabbit trail and I had not come to any conclusions that I was reading the text incorrectly. Look at it. Let no one judge you. Not you should not judge others, but don't let others judge you. Which made me have to step back and go, okay, so what are the recipients of this letter eating and drinking that is causing others in the congregation to point at them saying, you are not following the faith. And that is not made clear. It's not mentioned, it's not discussed, it's not extrapolated. We have no idea. Is he writing to Gentiles who haven't changed their dietary or liquid dietary habits and the Jews in the congregation are mad? Or is it some saying to those who are Jewish, saying, 
you're eating that, that's prohibited. And then isn't it interesting, when you start going back into the New Testament and you look at Peter's vision, and you look at other passages from Paul, how much conversation is in this Bible of ours about what we intake. And yet that's not the point of this sentence. This sentence doesn't say what you're eating and drinking is not even the topic. It says don't let others judge you. In other words, don't listen to their criticism or their attempt to tell you that you aren't holy enough because of something you're doing. Remember, the first word in this sentence is therefore. He has just laid out the totality of the gospel. All your sins are forgiven. You have the fullness of Christ. There is nothing more you can add to your faith. Therefore, don't let other people tell you that what you eat and drink will make you faithful. You see, that's the point of this passage. It's not a condemnation of eating and drinking. It's a warning to say, don't let someone else come into this conversation and tell you that you're not being faithful. The readers of this letter are not the judgers. They are the judges. And are being told that Christ is not enough. Now you can define this whole first probably two verses, 16 and 17, under a category of don't let them judge you or the topic of legalism. Legalism is the attempt to make yourself acceptable to God on the basis of an external activity. He's made it very clear. You are acceptable in God's eyes. Now, you always have to say, but... It also doesn't mean now that you, he says, don't let the people judge you, so go out and drink all the whiskey you want. Sleep with all the women you want. Do whatever you want. That is not what he's saying. It's not a license to then go out and do whatever. Romans 6.14 says, Sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. 1 Corinthians 10.31, which is what Lisa immediately said to me last night when I brought up this topic. She said, whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Romans 14 I just quoted Romans 6, but Romans 14, verses 2 and 3 says, One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and not let, let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. The point being, externals do not 
make you faithful. Externals will not save you. I've been spending some time in the last month in little snippets reading a biography of Martin Luther. Fascinating. So here was a man who, you know, had grown up and was uh, studying philosophy and with the idea that he would become a lawyer and um, following his, you know, his father's uh, wishes that he would make something of himself in the world. Instead, Luther became a monk. Daddy wasn't happy about that. But Luther had this sense of his sinfulness that was so great. I mean, this man really wanted to be holy. And there's a description of his, now remember this is the Catholic Church, because prior to Martin Luther, every Christian was a Catholic. Right? I mean, there was no option. You couldn't be a Lutheran. You know, that would have been a little hard. Um, and Luther hadn't tacked his, you know, 95 Theses up on the, on the Wittenberg door yet. He was a young 20-year-old monk trying to become perfect before God. And the way the church taught for you to remove your sin was through confession. Okay, those of you who have grown up Catholic in any way, shape, or form, you know this. You were taught it from infancy. To make yourself right before God, you confess your sins to the priest in the confessional, and they will give you something to do to make up for it. You know, say a bunch of Hail Marys and, or Our Fathers or some contrition. Luther got to the point, because he had one particular monk in the monastery to whom he was confessing, and he was wearing his confessor out. <laughs> one confession session lasted six hours. And when it was done, Luther said, I know I forgot something. So he was forever pressing it. And then he would even realize, you know, if I do find all of the sins, I'm going to be pleased. And that is a sin of pride, which I will have to confess. <laughs> And that's when he started realizing there's no way to get to heaven this way. And later on, as he grew and he began lecturing on the Psalms and then on Romans, and you can follow this theological journey of when he starts realizing that you're justified by faith, not by works. And you look at this, and you realize you've got a faction inside this church that is telling people, oh, you're not as holy as you could be. You need to follow my lead and do what I do, and then you can get to heaven. See how dangerous that is? 
It takes your mind and your heart away from what Christ has done for you and put it in something else as if that's what will make you holy. Isn't that a great introduction to this passage? We haven't even got through the first line yet. But he's asking, you know, questions of food and drink or regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Well, what is he talking about? Well, think of all the Jewish festivals. How many were there? Seven of them? Six or seven? And there were different times of the year and sometimes you should go to Jerusalem to... You know, be a, participate, sometimes not. But think of those festivals were annual events. They're usually once a year. The new moon was once a month, and the Sabbath was once a week. Notice what he's done here. That's a literary function. He's talking about big, middle, every week. He's actually saying, yeah, these, and he's not saying you should not participate in the festivals in the new moon or the Sabbath. He's saying don't let someone tell you that this is a sign of your faithfulness. Because otherwise, we could take this verse and go, oh, we shouldn't be celebrating Christmas. That would be bad. We shouldn't celebrate Easter either because that's an annual event. No. That's not what he's saying. He's saying these, verse 17, these are a shadow of things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ, or the realities, depending on your translation. The reality belongs to Christ. Ray Stedman has a great uh, illustration of this. He said, I carry with me pictures of my wife, my children, and my grandchildren. I take them along in order to be ready for people who try to show me their pictures to me. I value the photographs, and I look at them occasionally when I'm away from home. But what would you think if I propped up these pictures all over my house and talked to them and try to relate to them? You would think I had lost my mind, and I probably would have. But more than that, I would most certainly lose touch with the very people whose pictures I treasure. They would feel ignored and would probably ultimately leave me and all relationships would cease. And that's what Paul says is wrong with shadows. If you place primary value on the shadow after the reality has come, you destroy your participation in the value of what is real. The reality here is Jesus. He is the center of all life, the source of excitement in the Christian's experience. He's the one who accompanies us through life to comfort in times of need and strengthen when we are being tempted. He's a place of refuge to run to when we are troubled or uncertain about life. To lose him is to lose all source of excitement and vitality. The danger in observing shadows... That's why this passage begins with the word therefore. The previous section points out what Christ is to us. And Paul is saying, having him, therefore, don't let anyone spoil you by involving you in mechanical performances that will cancel out the reality of Christ. One way to very simplistically put this, the function of the gospel is pardon. Pardon. 
and the function of law is condemnation. Jesus, in verse 14, canceled the debt of law. And we live under grace. The pardon of the sin, not the condemnation of the law that shows us our need for salvation. I know that's simplistic, but I think it it kind of pulls it all together. The passage goes on. Verse 18. So let no one disqualify you. Stop. What? (laughs) Um, Did you apply for the job? Did you, how did you get disqualified? What, What does that mean? Well, believe it or not, this is an athletic reference. That's why you raced what you have up here, because if you look at the Greek word itself, it's kata. It's all one word, but I can put a hyphen in the middle of it so you can separate the two words. Bra, buo. So, Kata means against. So anytime you see the Greek word kata in anything, it's against. And then this is, for lack of a better definition, is a judge or a to judge for a prize. And in athletic competition, the Greek word for the judge is the word brabeus, so brabeuo, B-E-U-O, versus B-E-U-S, and the prize E-I-O-N, brabeon. So when Paul makes this allusion right here, those who understand they, they watch ESPN, <laughs> and they know what he's talking about, that he's talking about disqualifying you from the race, from the prize. They are telling these church people, your actions and what you're doing is not enough, and you are going to be disqualified because you're not following the right way or the right path. Have any of you in here um, participated in track and field where you had to run on in the, between the lines? And if you ever stepped out of the line, you're disqualified. This happened in the state tournament my senior year in high school. So I'm cheering on uh, one of my fellow teammates and I can't remember which race it was, but this is one of the, it wasn't a 100-yard dash, and maybe it was the 220, where you had to round the turn, but you had to stay in your lane. And the problem with the guy in the, the, the closest lane, you're ha- you have to lean as you run to stay in that lane, because if you say straight, you, you might accidentally move over to the next lane, which is exactly what happened. 
the fellow in the front, he was winning the race, but in the turn, he didn't lean properly and took two steps outside of his lane in front of the other runner interfering with him. And even though he won the race, he was disqualified. And the guy who ran second won the race. And they said, you stepped out of your lane. You're disqualified. You did not win the prize. The judge in there, they're all watching this. And they're like, oh, he interfered. He broke the rules. And we're all going, but he won like by 10 yards. That was 50 yards ago. Nobody cared. But he broke the rule. So, he starts with, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism. Ooh, a $10 word. Anybody want to define asceticism for me? What does asceticism mean? Put in jail, so nothing there. Hmm? Just having things very bleak. It seems like to me you have a lot of... Not, not a lot of freedom. There's also the idea of um, removing anything that gives you happiness. So that's the emotional side, but there's also the physical side of asceticism. You think of, if you've ever watched or read the book Da Vinci Code or seen the movie Da Vinci Code, there's a priest of the Imago Dei who would take a whip mm -hmm. with metal tongs on it and whip himself to remove the evil from his body so that he would be more pure. And then he would put wrappings on his thighs that had hooks in them. So every time he took a step, he would remember that he was unworthy that's asceticism in the ultimate degree. That's the idea of flagellating or even uh, uh, cutting yourself to prove your worthiness so that if you do enough negative, you'll find a positive somewhere. There are, that's a spiritual practice in many circles and also in many other religions you will find certain ones trying to make themselves super holy by fasting for two straight months. And you look at them going, they're just skeletal. Well, Gandhi was skeletal. He would not eat. It was part of his holiness was to show his righteousness by what he was not doing, which was not eating. That's asceticism. Now, it's interesting, and this is where I ran into the fact that I realized I was using the wrong translation, because the NIV does not use the word asceticism. It uses the phrase, anyone who delights in false humility. Now, that's a really different translation. You take the word asceticism versus delight in false humility, the thing is, the Greek word for asceticism means humble think. Literally. It's a two-part word meaning humble think. 
Most other places where that particular word is translated, it's translated as fasting. The idea of withholding something, usually food, but withholding something from the body as a holy act. Um, the NASB is delighting in humility. Hmm? The NASB, delighting in humility. Delighting in humility, not false humility. Interesting. No, yeah, the way it's worded, I'm like, huh, that we're supposed to be. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Well, F.F. Bruce has a way of putting it. He says, some people love to make a parade of exceptional piety. They pretend to have found the way to a higher plane of spiritual (coughs) existence as though they have been initiated into sacred mysteries which give them an infinite advantage over the uninitiated. Others are prone to be taken in by such people for this kind of claim impresses those who always fall for the idea of there being an inner ring. And Paul says, don't be misled by such people. That's what he's saying here. Don't be misled or don't let them disqualify you insisting on some sort of physical act that makes them more holy than you. And then adds in the worship of angels. And he kind of, again, you look at it and go, what does that mean? Ah, oh, okay. Another rabbit trail. Hooray. And you start getting into angelology and all of these ooga booga, really weird stuff that's out there that has been out there for centuries, if not millennia. I mean, there was a time where you had movies like Michael, written by Noah Ephron, where you had a angel was the main character that no one could see that was actually directing good things for their person. The guardian angel idea. Remember the, the TV show Touched by an Angel? that there was this idea these angels are among us and they're accessible because God is not. God is up here. He has better things to do than to care about your every day. But your angel, he cares for you. So let's pray to him or her or it, whatever it is. Interesting. You see... What's happening here? The eye is taken off of Christ and is placed on something else. And that is demonic. I'm not saying you don't believe that there's angels. You don't say that you don't trust that God cares for you. But you don't set the angel on an altar in your home and pray to it once a day, which is done in many, many households. You have to think about the modern day application of what Paul is writing about here because he was dealing with it in 62 AD. Later, when Gnosticism 
completely flowered and became full-blown thought process. It was still in its fledgling form here. They had the belief that angels were part of the journey to God. They were the steps to God. And so they would worship these entities as a way for them to find fulfillment or enlightenment, whatever word you want to call it. And so Paul is seeing the early vestiges of that. So not only worship of angels, but they go on in details about visions. Oh, great. Well, careful. Paul didn't say visions are wrong. Paul had visions. Acts 18, verses 9 and 10. 2 Corinthians 12, 1 through 10, are laid out where he had visions from God to him. Peter, Acts 10, verse 9. Ananias, Acts 9, verse 10. Those are all visions. So it's not a restriction against them or the invalidation of them. It is the use of them to manipulate people who don't understand. Because I can tell you, if we had some very charismatic individual who walked into this room, pushed me aside, and you all let him, thanks a lot, um, but you all let him do that, and then begin talking about this extraordinary vision that they have had. And you're like, really? And then he would say, and you can have it too. Really? $19.99 a month. <laughs> and you go, ah, you're a charlatan. Uh -huh. But how many might go home and say, you know, I'll give it a try. Because that was certainly compelling. Think of this. We hear it all the time. But this is happening in the church. And if someone is going to stand up and say, I know better, I have a better way than the gospel, walk away. Don't listen to it. It's so easy to be deceived by what's out there. A lot of very sharp and smart people out there. I mean, if you think about the angels side of things, you only have to flip over to, to Revelation and read Revelation 19, verse 10 and 11, where John says, I fell down at his feet, meaning the angel, to worship him. And the angel said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Even John was so overwhelmed in his vision with this angel, what the angel was saying, that he wanted to worship the messenger. And the messenger said, no, 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 no. Um, my, 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 my brother Lucifer got kicked out for that. So let's not let this happen. I really like my job. <laughs> I'm being facetious, but you get the idea.
not holding fast, verse 19, to the head. Okay, why is he being so vague? Why doesn't he just say, well, who's the head? Jesus Christ. Why does he just say that? Okay, I don't know. He, you know, he's literary. I deal with artists all the time. And they have a way of saying things that you kind of go, hmm, that's an interesting turn of the phrase. I wouldn't have said that, but okay. Not holding fast to the head because he's making an illustration to the body, to the body of Christ. From whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through his joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. People seek spiritual strength from something other than Christ. Why? Christ isn't enough? Has become too comfortable? He's in an old sweater. It just feels good on a, you know, a chilly evening that you put on when it's convenient. There was one, uh, one writer kind of went on a discursus about the idea of if Jesus isn't enough, what in the world are you doing going to church? And while you're in church, does your mind wander? Are you thinking about what's for lunch? If you read the screw tape letters, the devil who is assigned to undermine this Christian because, or undermine this guy, he goes back to his, uh, his uncle and says, oh, my guy just became a Christian. and went, oh, don't worry about it. Just remind him he's hungry during the service and he won't listen to the rest of the sermon. I mean, Pastor Jim made the joke about not looking at the organ behind him today and said to focus on him. He wasn't kidding. I mean, the temptation would be to let the eye go away from the word that's being expounded to something else. Hmm. Sounds like we need to follow Martin Luther's lead and confess of that sin. Uh, But that's the point here. Verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why? As if you were still alive to the world, do you submit to regulations like do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that perish that are used according to human precepts and teachings? In other words, we have the first section in this whole passage is don't let them judge you, don't let legalism come into it. The other one, don't let them disqualify you, don't let mystical visions and people who think that they know better than you do get in front of you. And here, don't let the world enslave you again. You were already enslaved to this type of activity. And now you're free from it. Why? Verse 23, because these indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism, there it is again, and severity to the body. One writer put it this way, the world is content if professing Christianity becomes a religion of prohibitions and rites and ceremonies. Because it's easy to dismiss. 
if all our faith is, is rites and prohibitions and ceremonies, they don't have to deal with Jesus Christ. They don't have to deal with sin. It's just, oh, you, you, you do that every week? Oh, oh, good for you. You're a good man. You're a good woman. Good for you. I don't. I don't need to. I'm good enough. Really? All manner of evil may thrive under a Christianity that is full of prohibitions, rites, and ceremonies. The only power for a holy life in this unholy world is the Holy Spirit. Amen. In fact, Paul says in Galatians, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Kind of seems simple. Thing is, we keep trying to define what that means. And we turn it into rules and regulations. <laughs> which we end up back in this whole vicious circle and cycle of of not focusing on Christ. These things have the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion, asceticism, and severity of the body, and then this great sentence, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And then I wrote underneath that, well, if they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh, what will? Doggone it, the chapter's over. Um, should I say come back next week? I mean, oh wait, can't come back next week. Can't come back the week after. I have to come back the week after that. I can't leave you hanging, but Paul doesn't either. And here's why. Because we have a artificial break before chapter 3. Someone put the number three there. And we stopped reading at the end of verse 23 because, oh, well, we're done with this idea. And if all this stuff he's talking about can't help you in stopping the indulgences of the flesh, well, what will? It's answered in the next sentence. It reads, If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you've died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with Him in glory. It's that simple. If you are concerned with an ongoing sin or a ongoing challenge in your life and you say, but there's got to be some answer for it. It's right here. Set your mind on things that are above, not things that are on the earth. Oh, that sounds so simple, Steve. Yeah, that's why it takes all of your life and a lot of failure and a lot of personal disappointment and a lot of struggle but that struggle is what makes you more mindful of your need for Christ in your life. You know, Pastor Jim 
in his sermon today, he wrote, or he was talking about, you know, to be looking at how God has worked in your life in the past where you may not have seen it. And so I wrote in my notes, I wrote, count your blessings. I was quoting the hymn. Name them one by one and see what the Lord has done. And then I wrote another paragraph. Count your many disappointments too. You may see his fingerprints pointing me back to dependence on him in the midst of those disappointments and failures. We can count the blessings, but we also need to count the times where we go, God didn't give me what I wanted. Huh. Well, that was arrogant of you. Really? You know better than he does? Well, you know, I didn't get the job I wanted. My, fi- my health failed. A relationship fell apart. I lost money on the deal. Something bad happened to me. It's God's fault. No, God, God is good. He's still good. He's always good. Those things will then show us, oh wow, I was actually taking all the credit for everything up to that point. And then it didn't work. And so I have to blame someone else. <coughs> A fairly common thing. <coughs> Excuse me. So count your many disappointments and count your many blessings. Because the whole point of all this is Christ. So, in conclusion, the next time you hear some teacher, some preacher, some really dynamic TED talk, someone who really is good at presenting falsehood, but you're not sure if it's false or not. Ask yourself, number one, who is being exalted by this teacher? Are they exalting themselves? Are they trying to teach you to exalt yourself? Does this teaching, does this person, does this truth or whatever that they're presenting help you overcome sin or disguise it? Does this teaching build up fellowship with others or destroy it? Does this teaching put your heart and mind under Christ or under the power of the teacher that you need to come back for more because they have a special secret that no one else has access to. And what is the effect? Does it create more man-made regulations? Or does it glory and honor Jesus Christ? And let me tell you, you take those questions and your discernment ability is going to escalate because you'll be able to filter what you're hearing going, Huh, I'm not quite sure that lands right. Um, Oh yeah, I'm supposed to be also reading my Bible because the answers are there. 
as well. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time here. For giving us a difficult passage. And yet, when you start pulling it apart and looking at it in its pieces, you realize there's intent here. For 2024, February 4th, Paradise Valley, Arizona, at noon, there's a reason why this was written 1600, well, 1940 years ago for our benefit. Thank you, Lord, for the gift that you've given to us in your word and the opportunity for us to unfold it and apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.